Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachia. And hello, friends. We welcome you to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us as we continue profiling the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia. Either they're from Appalachia, currently living in Appalachia, or have a strong connection to Appalachia and how that connection to the Appalachian region is reflected in their work. And we have an outstanding novelist and short story writer with us today who I've been a big fan of for a long time and have wanted to have on the program for a long time. And I'm so glad that I was able to snatch him up right after uh, his newest book has come out. The author's name is Taylor Brown. His new novel is called Pride of Eden, and it is an outstanding story that I can't wait to talk to him about with you all today. And Taylor Brown joins us as someone who grew up on the Georgia coast. He's been around and involved in living in Appalachia most of his life. He's lived in Buenos Aires. He's also lived in San Francisco, as well as the mountains of Western North Carolina. He's the recipient of the Montana Prize in Fiction, and he was also a finalist for the Southern Book Prize. His other novels include Fallen Land, The River of Kings, and Gods of Howl Mountain, and he currently lives in Savannah, Georgia, where he has relocated and called Savannah home for the last six months or so. So Taylor, welcome to Now Appalachia, and I'm so delighted to have you here, and welcome, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Elliot. Uh, I'm excited to be here. This is a, a, a just a wonderful novel, uh, so many things going on, just rich, lush, wonderful writing, wonderful storytelling with some fantastic characters, and I, I can't wait to talk about all of that with you today. I wanted to uh, ask you about one character that we meet early on in the story. We've got several characters here that we are introduced to as the story unfolds, and really one of the interesting things about the book is its, cent its central character uh, is a very interesting man. Uh, named Ance Caulfield, who, or, Cal, or Caulfield, I should say, um, who is a Vietnam veteran. He's a very interesting person. He's lived a, an interesting life. He's a retired racehorse jockey, and he also has plenty of his own secrets uh, about himself and about his past life. But we meet somebody else at the very beginning of the book, and her name is Malaya. And she, like Ance, is a former soldier. And we meet her at the beginning of the story. So tell us a little bit about who she is, and what is she up to within those first couple of chapters of the novel? Yeah, so um, Malaya is uh, a um, female um, anti-poaching ranger when the uh, book opens. Uh, she was um, in the Army. She's an Army veteran. Uh, she was in Iraq, and um, after that, she uh, connects with some people over there that get her... Um, into contracting in Africa, um, protecting wildlife, mainly uh, rhinos that are being poached for their horns and elephants being uh, poached for their ivory, uh, which as many of us now know, um, is uh, a really big issue that's uh, been going on for um, a while now. And um, uh, when the book opens, she's at a place that we just, is just called the Reserve with a capital R. Um, but which I based uh, loosely on Kruger National Park in South Africa. And um, they are tracking some uh, rhino poachers at the beginning of the book. Very good. And there's one line early on in the book, and I wanted to ask you about this because I think this kind of gives us some insight into uh, Malaya's personality. 
And uh, early on in the book, she's kind of reflecting on, she, she's sort of in a tent, it's at evening time, and she's kind of looking out onto the territory, onto the landscape of, the, of that villa or that community that you just described. She's kind of thinking about, you know, the elephants that are out there, the rhinoceroses that are out there, the, the tigers that may be out there, all the land, uh, the, uh, the wildlife that are inhabiting the land. And she has this one interesting line where she says something to the effect of, uh, or you write this, Malaya felt like all of them, and yet she felt like none of them. Can you tell us a little bit about what that says about her as a character, that line that she feels connected to those animals in some way, but at the same time feels like she has no connection to those animals that she's trying to protect? I think that uh, to some degree that line gets at um, something that I think all of the characters in the novel and that I myself was probably exploring, which is the human connection to animals and this, um, the idea that, you know, we all know that we are, you know, descended from from you know the the apes and that we are animals and yet we see ourselves as um, also something uh, we tend to see ourselves as something superior certainly and as something you know apart from the other animals and one thing that was interesting that I learned in some of my research is that people who spend most of their lives around animals whether they be uh, people that are you know park rangers or uh, animal keepers at zoos and sanctuaries and um, or people that just live in areas where they're surrounded by wildlife a lot. The delineation between us and them in terms of, you know, people and other animals between species tends to break down a little bit psychologically and we um, and people start to, um, for instance, have dreams that have animals in them, have dreams in which animals are not really separate from when they're almost, you know, communicating with animals and that kind of thing. And so I think I was exploring that idea kind of with, with Malaya and Malaya certainly has in a way, I think she is so um, empowered by the very animals that she's trying to, to protect. Um, and I think that, um, and she has a lot of trauma too, um, both uh, from, uh, you know, her time in the military and before that and, and, there's a healing going on too, I think, uh, throughout the book or search for healing uh, with a lot of those characters. And um, certainly she has traits. I think all the characters have some, maybe not animalistic traits, but traits that ways in which they identify with the animals and in ways in which that kind of gives them a little bit of, um, uh, that I think is empowering for them. Very good. And the title of your book, Pride of Eden, uh, one of the things I really liked about your story and about your novel is that setting and place is so important to what goes on, uh, not only what we see happening, but also uh, the impacts that setting and place have on characters and not only um, characters where they are now inhabiting this little Eden space, but how they got to little Eden to start with. But there's a, there's a passage I wanted to read because I, I really think this, this kind of helps illuminate uh, an idea that despite the fact you, you have this, this, sanctuary called Little Eden. Uh, this is a pretty rough and tumble place, and these people that inhabit uh, Little Eden are rough and tumble people. And, and on page 98, I was really um, caught by this flashback or this, this glimpse we get into um, a character named Horn. And we, we, we get a teenage Horns kind of flashback here on page 98 and 99. I just wanted to read a, a small snippet and then have you kind of tell us a little bit about just how, how rough this place is and, and how rough some of these characters have had it in their lives. And this passage is talking about how when Horn was 15 years old, uh, his first love, Jesse Ray Long, had cheated on him. 
with an upperclassman football player when he was in high school and he's mm -hmm. devastated and then something happens to him. And um, it, you write that he laid curled on a ball on his bed, his cries muffled by his pillow. He could not let his father hear. He must not show weakness, but his pain pulsed through the street rock of the house. After two days, his father had had enough. He burst in, took Horn by the back of the neck, and ran him down the hall and into the yard. He meant to force the boy into the dog box the first time in two years. Mm -hmm. And that passage really struck me because that was the moment for me when I was reading that that I realized, wow, these characters have been through so much. And this place that they inhabit, despite the fact it's got this bucolic name like Little Eden, um, is not kind of the Garden of Eden that we think of from the Bible. So can you talk a little bit about that, about this place and, and how it's not what it seems and how these characters sort of damaged and broken lives filter in when they come across a Little Eden? Sure, sure. You know, that instance, um, I would like to say that I, I completely came up, you know, with that instance out of my imagination, but I actually uh, had a friend who worked at a... Um, at a trauma center, you know, that they'd had a patient who had been locked in the dog box multiple times by their uh, family. And obviously the, you know, ideas of captivity and, and that kind of thing, you know, filter into the character. But, um, you know, Little Eden is, Little Eden itself is the, is the, uh, is the sanctuary, the animal sanctuary, which I set um, on, in coastal Georgia, but not really the coastal Georgia that a lot of people think right out on the coast. And you think of, uh, you know, beaches and um, golf courses and, um, uh, you know, c condos and those kind of things. But, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to go very far inland that, um, that, you know, it can be a fairly, you know, rough place. And a lot of the coasts had a hard time because um, it, before the interstate came, there was Highway 17, you know, the ocean highway that went all the way up and down the eastern seaboard. There are all these communities uh, down here that, were really based on, you know, that economy really kept those communities going. And when the interstate, that traffic moved inland several miles and all of the restaurants and the gas stations and so much that was along those stretches um, really got left behind, uh, largely economically. And obviously that has lots of other uh, impacts. And I've spent a lot of my life driving up and down uh, that highway. And on the one hand, it is so beautiful. And on the other hand, you can just see the ways in which so much has been left behind. There's so many buildings and hotels and gas stations and churches that are abandoned or, um, you know, people are living out of, you can tell almost, they may not be squatting, but there's something akin to squatting going on. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, a, um can be a fairly rough place. Um, and our main character, Ants Caulfield, what he does is he takes an old roadside zoo that was on Highway 17. So it had its heyday when it was uh, just a zoo where people would stop on their way down to Florida or on the way back for vacation. The interstate's building gets kind of left behind. He takes the zoo and decides to turn it into a sanctuary. And he has really good, um, uh, you know, intentions with it. And it's not a private zoo. It's not a place he's just trying to, you know, breed animals and, and make money. It's a place that he's really bringing in the animals that have been traumatized, that have been orphaned, that have been taken out of bad situations. Um, and then, of course, as you know, time goes on, we start to realize that maybe some of those animals, um, well, ants may be taking the concept of animal rescue quite literally and, uh, you know, proactively getting these animals out of, uh, out of bad situations, you know, and uh, by uh, extra 
extra legal means, you know? <laughs> uh, so um, that's a lot what's going on there. But yeah, to be honest, I, it, most of the characters I think are dealing with some trauma and have had fairly rough lives up until this point, but I certainly didn't set out to, to make them have those backgrounds. It just seemed led it, they just developed naturally, I guess, through the characters, you know, who the characters seem to be and, and the environments that they grown up in. Taylor Brown is our guest here on Now Appalachia. We're talking to him about his latest novel, Pride of Eden. And Taylor, we'll come back to the book in, in just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask you about uh, your career as a writer a little bit. Talk about that and your career as a novelist. Your stories are just so so beautifully written, so poetic, and they remind me so much of Ron Rash. They remind me so much of John Steinbeck. They remind me so much of so many different writers. But one of the things I love about your novels, too, is your ideas are so interesting and unique. And, and you take these, these and develop these wonderful characters and put them in these extraordinary circumstances. So I wanted to know, where do you get your ideas for these wonderful plots that you put into place in all of your novels? Well, thank you. Thank you. I think that um, one of the things that I say is I think one of the great things about being a writer is that um, you have to pay it. It just, it's, it's an excuse for you to keep your antenna up all the time. And I feel uh, like it's an excuse to really pay attention to the wor world around you, to pay attention to what people say and how they say it and the stories they tell. And a lot of times I feel like I'm less, you know, most of these stories, they don't, I don't just make them up out of nothing. They come, they start with stories that someone tells me and I just, it stays with me and I ask more questions and I start to run down the road um, with it. And so I can tell you that, most of my novels have started with short stories and most of those short stories have started with something fairly seemingly innocuous and, and small. So Pride of Eden really started with a little anecdote that someone told me. Uh, a friend of mine is a firefighter and his father was the fire chief in Douglasville, Georgia. And in Douglasville, Georgia, there lived a man named Red Palmer who was the um, inventor of the capture tranquilizer gun, which was one of the uh, first long-range tranquilizer guns, and it's still in use. And Red Palmer had a big compound in Douglasville with a bunch of exotic animals out there. Elephant that would drink from a can, you know, multiple big cats, troop of baboons that lived in a barn, all, all kinds of stuff. And uh, so uh, the story, as I heard it, was uh, my buddy's father, the fire chief, was at the firehouse, and this big dually pickup truck comes roaring up the drive, screeches on the brakes. Red Palmer jumps out, and he's got an elephant gun. And he says, uh, hey, you ain't seen a lion, have you? And my buddy's dad goes, oh, shit, Red, not again. And so um, <laughs> that just started me with this idea of someone having, you know, the exotic animals and some kind of compound. Now, he had them there um, more like as pets, I think, and for maybe some testing with uh, the capture tranquilizer gun, you know, ants has them is really trying to do good works with them. But the idea of exotic animals in our own backyards and what happens if they get out, I just found fascinating. So I just started following it and um, went, started going to some big cat sanctuaries. And as some of us have now heard in the last, you know, couple months with the uh, phenomenon that Tiger King, the miniseries on Netflix has become, um, but, you know, things that I learned a few years ago, you know, there are more tigers, captive tigers in the state of Texas alone than left in the wild in the rest of the world. 
and many states still don't have a whole lot in the way of um, exotic animal laws. So, you know, in the state of North Carolina, for instance, you can still own a lion or a tiger with, uh, without a permit in most counties. And so the idea of these great predators, some of whom in the wild are on, you know, verging on extinction, that are literally living in people's backyards um, was just an idea that took hold of me. And so I wrote a short story. You can probably tell from that anecdote that I told that sounds very much like the beginning of the second chapter of the book. Um, and I wanted to work that in there in a certain way. And then my buddy, his best friend that told me the story, his best friend's dad is a, is a jockey or what is a retired jockey. So I just had, you know, and so I kind of had these associations and, so I don't know, things usually start pretty small like that. Someone tells me a story and I just start running with it. And I tell you, and it seems like if you keep your antenna up and you work hard, weird synchronicities just happen. Like the fact that Pride of Eden comes out the same week as Tiger King. And while they're of very different styles, and um, I have some issues with Tiger King not portraying the issues that the animals have, you know, well enough and instead kind of, uh, just playing on the on all the human drama, right? But you know, they the book and that show take place in somewhat of a similar underbelly of big cats in America and the issues with private ownership and all those kinds of things. Um, and then, of course, we're seeing now all this strange rewilding that's going on during the pandemic and pumas in Santiago uh, and coyotes in San Francisco, coyotes in Chicago. You know, I mean, all images that somehow are not too separate from some things you see in Pride of Eden, you know? So it's kind of interesting the way these things tend to just come together. I don't know. It's strange. But. Yeah, that is, that is very true. And, and you're right. Yeah, we are seeing this, this rewilding going on uh, as we're in the midst of this pandemic and, and nature creeping closer and closer to the sort of uh, brick and concrete structures that we've built around them. Exactly. It's interesting. They're kind of reclaiming their territory, which is interesting. Yep. So, Taylor, who are some writers that influence or inspire you? Um, I think absolutely, you know, you said uh, Ron Rash is a big contemporary he hero of mine. Uh, Tom McGuane is another. Um, and then, I, you know, I grew up when I was a really little kid. I read, well, so I, I uh, to give you a little of my personal history, I was born with club feet on both sides, bilateral club feet and a really bad set of them. So I had a bunch of reconstructive surgeries not long after I'm, I was born, but then again in elementary school and then again early in high school, which would put me down. Some, and then I broke uh, bones a lot in my feet and ankles and had other injuries a lot. So I spent a lot of time on crutches and a lot of time a little bit cooped up in the house, um, which I know some of the listeners probably know the feeling right now with quarantine and, and stay-at-home orders and stuff like that. So I just read books for a lot of it, you know? And... Um, I grew up reading just what was ever was on the shelves from Tom Clancy and Jack Higgins. You know, what my parents had around was more kind of like, and John Grisham, legal thrillers and, and things like that. And then, then I just got into the classics because I had a sister that was seven years older and all of her books that they, she would read in school were all on our shelves. You know, when I was in fifth grade, she was already off in college, but all those books were there. So I read all the, you know, Hemingway and Steinbeck, Virginia Woolf, Faulkner, you know, all of those kind of um, canonical, you know, uh, uh, 20th century authors, you know, were really, um, uh, you know, meaningful at me for different periods of my life and continue to be, you know, Flannery O'Connor, um, 
And then I would say another one that you don't hear as much about, but was a big influence on me was actually Pat Conroy. Oh yes. He was the first writer that I really read that um, wrote about my region that I knew uh, that wrote about. Now he was writing about the South Carolina low country, but I still grew up on the Georgia coast. I mean, the marshes, the tidal waters, those kinds of things um, were something that I'd never um, experienced anyone else writing about a whole lot. And so that, you know, um, meant a lot to me. And I read all his books, you know, in high yeah. school. Um, and um, so now, you know, I, I, I think that I find myself going back a lot to a lot of, you know, the, the books that were meaningful to me at a, at a certain time for this book. You know, I went back to uh, Peter Matheson's The Snow Leopard um, is a book that means a lot to me. And um, uh, and there's a book called Red Cavalry, which is a cycle of short stories by Isaac Babel that uh, meant a lot to me in terms of style and in terms of doing a lot in a small space, you know, because he could write these, any of those stories could be a whole novel or feel like they pack a punch that few short stories do. So I... Um, yeah, that's that's some of my you know kind of favorites that I go back to a lot these days. I, I I tend to find myself a lot just picking a book up off the shelf and and opening it up to any spot like some people in the old days would do with the Bible and just reading a little bit when I just need a little some 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 of this or some of that you know. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned Pat Conroy. We we've talked about Pat Conroy a lot with different authors on this program, mm -hmm. and you know he's certainly my you know my two favorite all time writers. Contemporary was Pat Conroy. Uh, my classical favorite writer was John Steinbeck and our mm -hmm. listeners who've been following this program for the last couple of years know that we've talked about them a lot too, about yeah. cl classic versus contemporary, but that, that, that Pat Conroy had a way of explaining and describing and understanding the human condition that mm -hmm. uh, is just really um, unparalleled. I think in a lot of writing that we see today, he certainly was, was the best at it. And that's for sure. Yeah. And, and, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, my language tends to be pretty, rich and, and big. And um, Pat Conroy, I felt like in some ways helped give me that freedom as did Tom Wolfe before him, who, yes. or Thomas Wolfe, who was a, you know, I know a hero of, of, um, of Pat Conroy's. And um, uh, so I felt like, you know, they, it was more like, you know, we hear so much moderation and moderation and they made me feel more okay to, you know, let my voice roll with it. And that is what is more natural to me. And, you know, sometimes when I get in a little bit of trouble for maybe doing that too much, I'm like, man, y'all need to pick up, <laughs> you know, you know, you need to compare this to some Pat Conroy or something, <laughs> you know, you want some, uh, some big language in there. But um, anyway, so that was an, that was another way in which I think Pat Conroy was influential for me. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of like he made it seem okay, you know, and he's one of those ones that I really wish I'd been able to meet um, uh, before he passed away. Yeah. We're talking with Taylor Brown here on Now Appalachia about his new novel, Pride of Eden. So, Taylor, let's go back to your book again for a few minutes. Uh, we, we talked about uh, ants at the beginning of the program, at the beginning of our interview. We really haven't uh, talked a whole lot about him, but uh, other than we've mentioned kind of who he is and what he's doing there. But the, the whole premise of the novel, one of the, the main plot threads of the novel is the fact that um, he was taking care of a lioness named Henrietta. Henrietta escapes uh, early on in the story, and in the attempt to recapture her, she's shot dead because mm -hmm. the lion seems to be turning on ants and getting ready to attack him. Um, and ants is such a complex character. And one of the things I really liked about him is, as we see him develop in the novel is we see a different side of him 
with relationship to who he's talking to. So he yeah. and Tyler, who is the vet that lives in Little Eden with him, have a certain dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then he certainly has a different dynamic with Henrietta. Uh, he's got uh, just different dynamics with, with different characters. There's another character we're introduced uh, to who uh, knows a lot about drones and fal- uh, falcons. And, uh, you know, he has a, a disposition towards him. He just mm-hmm. seems to kind of show a different part of his personality, these different characters. Can you talk a little bit about, about him as a character? And I, I can only imagine he was, because he's such an interesting character and you've imbued him with so many great characteristics, but he's great to follow. Can you talk about sort of setting up a, a multi-layered protagonist like Ants and how much fun that probably had to be creating him and, and putting him in these different circumstances? Sure, sure. I think, um, you know, Ants tends to be, you know, he's certainly laconic and um, can be a little bit gruff, even uh, cantankerous, you know, at times, I think a little curmudgeonly and I, in a way that I find, to be honest, sometimes almost uh, uh, humorous, you know, I think that um, he uh, has a lot of trauma and he has a very hard exterior. And depending on who it is, he gives them a level of hardness, you know, and they, and it, it, and it takes a while to get through the kind of those barriers. And there's certainly some characters that I thought of in kind of my own literary history that, that I thought about with ants. One was uh, the Hey Duke character in um, Edward Abbey's work, who is based on, a, um, and I actually haven't read that much Edward Abbey, but I recently um, had been reading um, some Rick Bass, where he hangs out with the person that uh, Hey Duke is based on, and w- who was both the character Hey Duke and the real person, you know, were Green Beret medics in Vietnam, and then uh, came back to the States and really got very involved as kind of, you know, early what we would think of as, as eco warriors, you know? Um, and so there's certainly some of that and they're not what you would think. They're not kind of, you know, you think of this sometimes uh, when you think of uh, kind of real environmental, there, there's a certain stereotype about environmental activists that I think is kind of this tree hugging soft, type of in the and these are the antithesis of that and i really like that i wanted this character that was like that and then i i also think about call a little bit in lonesome dove you know this kind of gruff hard exterior not always the most articulate or doesn't want to be you know grunts instead of answering sometimes um all were you know ways or parts of of ants you know i didn't think about it so much as setting him up as just for me, you know, I usually tend to find these characters and, and I just start writing them and I let them, I say sometimes that I know when I've really found the character or I've really found the story, when the characters start acting out on their own, not necessarily how I expected them to act. So there's a fork in a road and in my head, you know, that in that chapter, or whatever, however far ahead it is, I kind of have an idea what they're gonna do. When I get there in the writing process, they make a different decision. And usually that happens, um, it just seems inevitable. I mean, there's no, usually I just, and I let it happen because then I feel like that I've really got some complex, some real characters who are becoming alive on the page, right? And so I do feel like I was, I was able to find that with Ants. Um, and, and so he evolved in that way, kind of um, on his own in some ways, it seems like, um, you know, to me. Um, but I wanted to have this complex character that's not maybe what you expect in terms of stereotype, that is not, um, who your 
idea of someone running an exotic animal sanctuary or having a soft heart for animals would necessarily be. Mm -hmm. uh, and all of that found their way uh, into ants, I think. Um, and even his name, you know, I was asked recently about names and, and um, you know, tough kind of name that, uh, you know, you think of Devil Ants Caulfield or something like that. All, you know, I, I wasn't thinking that when I wrote it necessarily. I wasn't thinking Devil Ants Caulfield, but that name because of Devil Ants has this, a little bit of edge to it, I think. that I, and, and certainly Ants has his hard edges, you know, as, as we see throughout the book. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Taylor, when readers get to page 285 and mm -hmm. they've turned that last page and they've closed the back of the book, what do you hope they take away from your latest novel? That's a really good question. Um, I want them to have certainly, you know, enjoyed the story and enjoyed the ride because that is a big part still of storytelling and what, you know, I love in a book. But I also hope that it encourages them to re-examine our relationship with the other creatures that we share, you know, this planet with. And um, I think when we look back uh, in periods hence, even after we're already gone, one of the defining traits of this time is going to be our relationship um, with nature and ways in which um, we've both damaged the environments and are now trying to take steps to um, do a better job of, of living in harmony with the other creatures. And, um, I recently read a book that I really, really enjoyed about, um, oh gosh, um, it's going to, the, the title of it is going to escape me, but it, it talks about, um, it's the culture of enchantment and this idea that in, um, societies before ours, especially more in pagan societies, there was a real reverence and respect for, uh, nature and the other creatures. You know, if we look at the paintings in Le Chaux uh, Cave in France, right? These very early cave paintings, we see the animals portrayed almost as if they're, you know, godly creatures with a great amount of respect. That doesn't mean that they weren't hunted. That doesn't mean that, you know, they weren't feared. None of that, but there was a mutual respect, or there was a respect at least, you know, from the human side toward animals. And that was something that I think I did want to get across in the book and ha have us re-examine that a little bit. And um, certainly through my research into a lot of the, of the animals that show up in the book, particularly the big cats, only reaffirm that notion of how amazing these animals are. Much like us, they've survived eons and eons of natural selection to um, be incredibly capable, um, you know, creatures and, and, uh, and capable of really impressive things. And um, we sometimes forget that because we only see them, you know, in zoos and they're largely taken out of their natural environments these days and those kinds of things. So um, not to ramble too much, but I do hope that um, not only is the book enjoyable, but it encourages people to maybe think a little bit differently um, about the other creatures that, that we share our, our home with. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. So in our final moments with you, Taylor, if uh, anyone in our audience who's been listening to our program today wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about Pride of Eden or any of your other novels or about writing or whatever it may be, where can they find you? How can they get in contact with you? And then also, where can they get copies of your book? So um, you can get in contact with me. I'm on Instagram at TaylorBrown82. That's where I'm the most um, active these days. Um, I also have a Facebook page under Taylor Brown Fiction, where I'm uh, pretty active as well. And I'm also on Twitter as at Tay Brown, one word. I'm a little bit 
less active these days on, um, on Twitter, but, um, you can find me at any of those, uh, different spots or at my website, taylorbrownfiction.com. And, um, I highly encourage you to pick up uh, the book from your local indie bookstore, especially right now when a lot of these brick and mortars are um, really struggling. Um, and so if you can get it from your local bookstore, I'd highly recommend that. If you don't have a local bookstore, there's a new startup called bookshop.org, which is uh, donating a large share of the proceeds to independent bookstores. They have raised over a million dollars now, which are be which is being, um, uh, distributed to independent bookstores. And if you want a signed copy, you can get one through any of my two hometown, uh, um, local bookstores in Savannah, which are E Shaver booksellers and the book lady. Both of them have, um, signed copies. And if you need anything inscribed, I think they're both, um, uh, probably still open to me being able to come in and, um, and inscribe a copy as well. Fantastic. And I know they're both doing uh, medium, free media mail shipping and some different things like that to help out right now. Excellent. Very good. Well, I certainly encourage uh, everyone in our audience to pick up a copy of your latest book because it is absolutely fantastic. It's not only wonderfully written and beautifully written, but just wonderful storytelling about uh, something we can all relate to, as you mentioned, which is our relationship to animals, but more importantly, uh, how we can use uh, animals and our relationship with animals to sort of help and help heal some of our broken pieces and our broken past. And it's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful novel. It's called Pride of Eden. Our guest today on Now Appalachia has been Taylor Brown. Uh, also check out Taylor's other novels because they will, you will not be disappointed in those either. His other novels include Fallen Land, The River of Kings, and Gods of Howell, H-O-W-L, Mountain. Uh, but we've been pleased and delighted to talk with him today about Pride of Eden. Taylor, congratulations. It's a wonderful book. And as you keep writing, we'll keep having you back on the program to talk about it. So thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really, really fun. We also want to take a moment as we finish up this episode of Now Appalachia to give a shout out and a special thanks to the executive producer of Now Appalachia and the executive producer of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. She is responsible for making sure everything works smoothly and gets posted properly and gets uh, audio checked and everything that you've come to expect when you listen to a podcast here, not only on Now Appalachia, but also on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. So Pam, thank you for all your support and all that you do behind the scenes to make each one of these podcasts possible. And we also want to take a moment to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That's going to do it for us this time. Uh, until we talk again, I'm Elliot Parker. Stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.